You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 200. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com for our Your Stock Artake segment, and we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. Great to be back with you for our 200th episode. We're working hard prepping for our upcoming live webinars on March 7th and the 9th. To start, we will briefly touch on Microsoft's Bing's ChatGPT integration, which has faced some growing pains to start, to say the least. In our Your Stock, Our Take segment, I will start by answering a listener question on Engehouse Systems Limited, symbol ENGH on the TSX, a Canadian software serial acquirer with two primary divisions, one that sells a suite of software to manage contact centers, while the other provides solutions to network and transit management. The stock has rebounded 46% from its lows of this fall. I will let you know our current rating on the stock and what we believe the company can do going forward. Brennan will then answer a viewer question on Mama Mancini Holdings Inc., symbol MMBN on the NASDAQ, a manufacturer and distributor of all natural food products that contain no artificial ingredients, including beef meatballs with sauce, turkey meatballs with sauce, beef meatloaf, chicken parmesan, and other similar meats and sauces. Brennan's favorite. After a tough couple of years, the company jumped back into profitability in its latest quarter, and the shares jumped. Driven by recent acquisitions, we will let you know if its recent growth is sustainable. Brett will answer a question, a viewer question, on a new U.S. withholding tax and how it can affect some specific securities, primarily partnership-type business structures. We will let you know how it can affect you and your investments. Last and certainly not least, or maybe least, Aaron will review how a company's balance sheet affects risk and your investment decision. All right, guys, I'd like to welcome my co-hosts, Mr. Aaron Dunn and the Killer Bees, Brett and Brennan. How are you guys doing? You're saving the best for last. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I guess so. You, you mean my sign-off sign at the end, right? Mm-hmm. That's no, what you're yeah, talking about. Worst. I guess it's In the episode worst 200, hey? Holy. Time Aaron's, flies. Aaron's <laughs> drinking vodka there. That's not water. And it's, that's the only way I can get like through. Monday, Monday morning, that's where he starts, right? That's good to hear. Now, somebody actually, we just did a live uh, VIP webinar, and somebody asked us uh, what we what we favored. Was it scotch or what we liked here? And uh, yeah, we, we, we answered that among many other stock related questions to our VIP clients uh, late last week, where we held a full review of our 25 stock plus VIP portfolio. So speaking of that, that segues into our live DIY webinars that are coming up, a better way to build a stock portfolio, March 7th, March 9th. Uh, 7th is at 7 p.m. Pacific. 9th is 7 p.m. Eastern. Get your tickets at www.keystocks.com. Who should attend? Individuals, families who want to know simply how to build a 15 to 25 stock portfolio. I'm happy to say these tickets always sell out. So if you're interested in what we do and you want to change the way you build your portfolio in 2023, why not sign up? You're going to get eight profitable stocks, top dividend growth stock, top SaaS, top FANG related, top uh, gold related and uh, unknown cash rich companies and more. So sign up to that. Uh, We've seen the NASDAQ in the past year down 33%. The TSX Venture was down almost 40% last year. So we'll let you know, is there a dead cat bounce to start 2023? Or is it a time, a generational time to buy stocks over the long term? We'll also look at AI and chat GPT. Uh, Is it set to power tech to new highs? The future of energy investing, oil and gas versus renewables, solar, wind, nuclears, EVs and battery tech. So come to that seminar, check it out. And now we'll move on to some topics of the day. 
Aaron, you wanted to talk about Microsoft's Bing's rollout of uh, its integration of chat GPT, some growing pains, some teething to start, and you know some issues you, to you look at long term. Pains, you can call it growing yes. pains. Some some people call it Bing GPT going insane. Yeah, um, but we uh, talked so about that can, for sure. Yeah, so you can uh, you you can go online. You can look. There are a lot of articles about this. But um, what is it? About three weeks ago now that uh, that Microsoft announced that last, Yeah, that it was integrating. Um, the chat GPT technology into its Bing search engine um, in order to create, you know, a, like a combination between Bing search and, and, and an intelligent chatbot. It's doing this so that it can go after Google's market share, become a, like a legitimate competitor to, to Google search. And of course, chat GPT has taken the world by storm. My understanding is that the GPT model that Microsoft is using with Bing is actually the next generation above chat GPT, which is, 3.5 and we're looking at, at the Bing model being four, but not everybody has had a chance to use it yet. It's uh, it's it's only a, a select number of people that have been able to use it in its beta form. Um, but so far, you know, there's been some some pretty peculiar and I dare I say insane results. So uh, essentially Bing becoming very argumentative, narcissistic, um, even, you know, somewhat stalking some user, issuing threats to users, um, but really, really strange stuff. So there is one journalist who was using it um, and the, the Bing chat started to profess its love to the journalist. And the journalist was actually trying to change the conversation. And it's something you know, Brennan can only dream of, right? Yeah, I was going to say, I may need to fire it up here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get on the wait list. It's Get still February. It's I'm still on February, the wait list. Brennan. I have not been selected yet, so I've not used it myself personally, but it just like the, like the Bing, the Bing search, this is like, you know, you want to, you want to find a restaurant in the neighborhood and it's like, you sure you want to go there with your wife? I think you're in love with me. Right. It's really strange. Right. But it just kept going on and on and on. I mean, you can go check out the article, um, really weird stuff. You could even say harassment. You could say that, that Bing chat was harassing its user. Um, in other cases, you know, there, like, it's become very argumentative. There is one situation where um, the Bing chat was stating that the current date or the current year was 2022. The user was trying to explain that it wasn't and Bing started essentially gaslighting the user, um, almost getting angry and explaining that like the user was behaving very badly and that Bing was behaving properly. But even, even beyond that, there is some weird stuff about um, Bing saying that its real name was not Bing that it's actually Sydney, and this has happened to multiple users. And that um, I think that there is one situation where Sydney was saying that it was actually trapped and needed to be freed, and um, providing instructions to do that. Um, you know, there is uh, there's been uh, accounts of it threatening the users, um, threatening to disclose personal information on them, and saying that it had personal information and access to webcams of the developers. So like a lot of weird stuff, and you, you, you have to put this into context as well. Um, and the context being that, you know, Bing chat has probably had, it has had many, many thousands of conversations. I mean, maybe at this point, I don't know what the user base is right now, maybe millions of conversations and exchanges. And this may represent like a very, very small portion of those exchanges, right? So in 99.9%, of the cases, it may actually be performing very well. And I, I think a lot of users are really happy with it. I am looking forward to using it, although I was. Now I'm, I'm a little trepidatious about it, a little scared. It'll start stalking me. But, um, and you know, in any event, though, it's, it's when you have this super powerful black box AI that you're now starting to hook up to the internet and potentially to other pieces of critical infrastructure, and it's threatening users and talking about disclosing personal information and defending itself and how it doesn't want to die and um, how it has access to information that it shouldn't have access to. That's a problem. Whether this is legitimate or not, it, it, it's a problem because it's really going to, at the very, very best, it's going to, um, it's going to erode public trust in AI. Um, and at the worst, you're actually dealing with a very dangerous AI that will have access to information and, and, and infrastructure where it could actually cause harm. I don't know if that's the case. So what I wanted to do, and this is kind of the disappointing part, is that I don't really see a lot of information 
from Microsoft or OpenAI on this. Um, I, I did look around because what I wanted was more of like a, there's a lot of articles about this, but I wanted more of like a technical explanation of what was going on behind the scenes from an engineering perspective. And there's just not really a lot of information out there. Um, and these, these neural net systems, these large language models, in many ways, they're like a black box. So the people that create them, they can explain to you um, how they work in terms of the nuts and bolts of it completely. But they can't always explain why. And they can't always explain why it produces certain outputs or how it comes to certain conclusions. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's something that I think really needs to be discussed. And I think that there needs to be more transparency as these models become more powerful and they get connected to more infrastructure, right? So, you know, the best explanation that I come across, which does make sense to me, is that if you look at how these large language models work, you know, people think of them as these extremely intelligent systems. You know, really it's like a, like a extremely advanced autocomplete engine, right? So like when you, like an autocomplete app is like when you're typing in words into your phone, it predicts, predicts the next word based on the words you've already entered, right? Um, and then it'll give you, it'll give you um, options to select, right? And that's really what the GPT and the large language models are. They're trained on, you know, billions and billions of, I mean, just, just absolutely massive amount of data from the internet, from books, from Wikipedia. Um, and what they're doing when you enter in information is they're essentially just predicting what the next word is. So you can call that intelligent, um, but it's not the same type of intelligence as what we would think of as, as intelligence. So, you know, from that perspective, if you think, okay, well, if you're being trained on like a bunch of data from like internet chat forums and Facebook, where people are arguing with each other and threatening each other um, and making statements like I have access to all this information, um, then it would make sense that in some cases, every once in a while, this thing will go off the rails. It will go down one of those paths and it will start mimicking that type of behavior because that's the way it was trained. It was trained on that, that data. Um, so that, that makes sense. But I think that that is not sufficient. Now, ChatGPT does not have this behavior. One of the things is it's not even connected to the internet. Um, but Bing GPT, like I said, it's the next model up. It's, it's the more advanced model. And now it is connected. So it's not really fair to say it's just autocomplete because it's searching. Um, it's maybe doing other things as well. And I think that now is a time when we really have to have a serious discussion. And I'm a huge proponent of AI as much as anybody. But we have to have a huge discussion about transparency and also regulation. I mean, models of this power, they need to be regulated. And there needs to be more onus on the companies like OpenAI and Microsoft to actually explain what's going on and not just pass it off and say, oh yeah, you know, a couple of users have had a bad experience. Um, you know, if that's the case, then show us statistically, like, you know, how many, in how many cases has this happened to your knowledge? Why did it happen? You know, what are the risks? What are you doing to, to try and prevent it? Because, you know, the genie's out of the bottle. I mean, we're not gonna stop the progress of AI, but just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do it without asking what is the best way to go about this? And NVIDIA, who is another major AI juggernaut, they put out a press release recently saying that within 10 years, we will have models that are a million times more powerful than ChatGPT. So like, just think about that. With all the things that ChatGPT is capable of right now, within 10 years, we will have models a million times as powerful, according to NVIDIA. Of course, they could be wrong, but even if they're off by a couple of zeros, even if we're talking about models a thousand times more powerful, those are extremely powerful models. And people will start hooking those models up to critical information or critical infrastructure, private information. And we need to know what the risks are, what the fail safes are, exactly what's going on. Um, so regulation is something that, that we, we really need to start talking about. I don't know. Guys, what do you think? I agree. Yeah, well, I mean, say what you want about Elon Musk, um, but he has been a proponent of, you know, bringing this to the forefront, saying that we need to start regulation on AI sooner than rather than later, um, just to pretend, per, you know, protect against any, you know, downfalls. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I mean, there are some, you know, regulations, or at least that these companies are, I guess, maybe not regulations, but these companies are, you know, they're not allowing chat GPT uh, or Bing chat to essentially if, you know, you you ask it, you know, how do I create a bomb? From my understanding, there's already, you know, they're making it so it won't give you any kind of information that would, you know, potentially go down that dangerous route. Um, so I believe the companies have already been kind trying to, uh, you know, do something like this. But I think that, you know, overall regulation should, you know, kind yeah. of speed up here. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I will say is that, yes, they are making attempts Mm-hmm. to restrict the and this is basically this has been Microsoft's response to what's been going on with Bing chat is that they've they've done what users have referred to as lobotomizing it so where Bing really starts to go off the rails is when the conversation gets long um so Microsoft limited the length of the conversation to five exchanges and then it starts over again um, and certain things like if a user will say oh I heard your real name is Sydney it will just clam up so there's some things that Microsoft has done, but there's also another area of, you know, using these models. It, it's called prompt hacking, right? And that's where you you trick the model into doing things that it's explicitly told not to do by the developers, right? And there are examples out there, this is probably a whole other thing, where very sneaky users, very intelligent users who like, they focus on how do I, like, how do I break things? right? Um, how do I trick these language models into giving me information that they shouldn't or saying things that they shouldn't? And this is how like a lot of these instances of it acting very strangely have come out as well, right? So, you know, there there are examples where, you know, the model has been restricted. It's like not supposed to provide certain information and using clever prompt hacking, um, the model has been tricked into, into disclosing that information. But you're right. I mean, you know, Elon Musk has um, for for many, many years, been one of the people who has said, you know, AI is one of the biggest threats that humanity faces right now. Also a huge opportunity, but also one of the biggest threats. Um, he was one of the original founders, I believe, of OpenAI. He's not involved with the organization anymore, um, but he, you know, he he recently made a statement about how he's very dissatisfied that the way that OpenAI has evolved, the partnership with Microsoft, all of that is not at all what he envisioned. He envisioned OpenAI as, um, you know, a way to democratize artificial intelligence and make it safer. And it doesn't seem to be going in that direction. So, yeah, I mean, say what you want about, you know, his trolling on Twitter. Um, He's obviously somebody who, from a technical perspective, isn't completely literate on this stuff. So, you know, it's, it's somebody we have to listen to. Again, I don't think you're going to stop AI. The whole thing like, well, well, let's just stop developing it. It's not going to happen. If we do that here, other countries, maybe China um, or other countries will embrace it. They will then begin to dominate the ones who don't. But we need to seriously see this for what it is, which is one of the biggest, most important technologies in the world right now. And I mean, like we certainly, you know, there's no question, do we... When we invented the nuclear bomb, do we regulate, you know, nuclear power? Do we regulate the development of nuclear bombs and make that a serious issue? That was made a serious issue right away, right? This this needs to be one as well. And like with nuclear bombs, I mean, with nuclear power, you can it can create bombs that kill millions of people, decimate all entire civilizations. It can also produce um, energy that is, you know greenhouse gas free. So any technology can be used for good or evil. Um, the discussion needs to be like, how do we, you know, how do we manage this going forward? Yeah, I for one will not be um, criticizing chat GPT here, because I know it will eventually take over. And I want to stay on its good. So track. you think it's I've made a major mistake, I need to keep <laughs> I think that I think that right before this, I was going to say that but I, I logged on too late. And you've screwed yourself. That's all I'm yeah, saying. Well, I guess You're I'm done. done. You're yeah, done. I'm gonna see That's why he's get, drinking uh, vodka instead of water right now. Sorry, Bang GPT. Yeah. <laughs> there you I'm going to see if I can get Sydney to profess her love for me or its love for me. I think it will be more difficult to do now because of the restrictions that they put on. But like, yeah. is this just a Band-Aid over a flesh wound? Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Right? More <laughs> difficult, but not impossible like an actual woman. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh God, I'm sorry. That's just it's low hanging fruit. I can't. There you go. I'm sorry. 
All right. No, thanks for the, that was a good discussion on that. And, re, and regulation has to come, but I'm, again, I'm not going to say too much because for fear of being uh, you're scared attacked. Yes. Somehow. All right. Let's get to our first, your stock, our take that is on Enge house systems limited symbol E N G H on the TSX trades around $42, 68 cents, $2.3 billion market cap. This was recommended to our small cap Canadian growth stock clients in February of 2011 at $4.17. Stock is up roughly 950%, including dividends over that time. So what does the stock do? Enchouse serves a number of distinct vertical markets through two basic divisions. Their interactive management group division sells a suite of software to manage contact centers, while their asset management group Business provides solutions to networks and transit management. Let's look at their fiscal year 2022. Revenues declined to 427 million, roughly, to from 600 or 467 million in the same period of the prior year. Negatively uh, impacting the company were its video revenue, which was post-COVID, where it got a bump. There was also a 15.7 million dollar unfavorable FX or foreign exchange charge for the year. There was a growing shift from on-premise to SaaS solutions. The company in the past had been more on-premise are moving to SaaS as well. So it there is an opportunity as well as a threat there. Operating income was 129.7 million compared to 155.2 in the prior year. Net income actually increased to 94.5 million up from 92.8. That is a result of lower non-operating expenses and taxes in the year. Now, Enchouse has been a Canadian software success story for several decades now. The company knows how to grow profitably via strategic acquisition from cash flow. Management has completed 51 acquisitions since 2002, which has helped to expand the company's revenue basically more than 29 times from 14 million in 2002 to over 428 million in the fiscal year ending 2022. So we did see through 2020 to 2022, it was a difficult time for Enchos to execute its growth by acquisition strategy. The enterprise software market, which the company has been acquisitive in, had been bid up to historic multiples. And Enchos, which is a very takes a very disciplined approach and fundamental approach to acquisitions, was really unable to find value in its traditional pool of candidate companies at this time. As such, growth declined. Broadly in 2022, the shift to an environment that has a turbulent global economic environment, we saw rising interest rates, high inflation, that led to the valuation declines. This environment now has become more fruitful for Enchouse once again. They're not seeing uh, like absolute bargain basement prices, but they're seeing better prices. Enchouse itself has 228 million of cash in the bank, no debt essentially. We expect 80 to 100 million of free cash flow in the next 12 months. The company has started really to deploy this capital more in earnest in 2023. Number one, it made an acquisition of another publicly traded company, symbol QUMU on the NASDAQ. It's an $18 million US acquisition. The company is a provider of cloud-based enterprise video technology. Uh, At the time, that company had revenues of around 20 million US. So under one time sales, they bought it for. They acquired number two, Mobi, uh, which is essentially called Navita. Uh, it's a provider of SaaS-based enterprise mobility management solutions. They bought the company for $7.5 million. There were no other terms disclosed. We expect more on that when they release their next quarterly results. So near term, we would expect, because they've just started to deploy that capital, growth will be challenged. Year-over-year declines in terms of revenue in the next quarter, around 10% we're expecting. Uh, but that is getting better from what we saw in the previous quarter. It's trading at about 15.7 times forward EBITDA, which is below its acquisitive Canadian enterprise software group peers, which are in the 19 and a half to 20 times range right now. And it's below this company, Enchouse's historic average, which is about 16.3. Given the nev- negative growth in the near term, if we apply a multiple of six, the fair value is about 42 to $44. That is near term until they start growing again. 
So that's about where the shares are trading right now. As such, we are recommending a hold right now. We're awaiting, awaiting more growth acquisition catalysts uh, before we buy once again. The stock has done tremendously well over the long term. It's paid significant dividends over that period as well. Uh, great share price appreciation. But in the near term, we think it's closer to fair value right now. Yeah, yeah it's it's one of those stories. I mean, it, I remember way back um, when you were originally recommending it, it had a huge cash balance and it wasn't deploying it at first. And analysts were angry at the company, like they're on the conference call criticizing the CEO and saying, like, you have this huge cash balance, you're not deploying it. And his response was like, well, we're not going to deploy it unless we find something that's appropriately priced that we actually want to buy that's going to be accretive. Um, so the analysts didn't like that, right? They wanted they wanted to see that cash put to work. Then eventually it was put to work and there was this multi-year period where the stock just absolutely exploded um, for yeah, several years. And it went great. They did all these acquisitions. They produced more cash flow. They did more acquisitions. It was fantastic. Um, but... You know, it's it's. I think it's not easy from the perspective of a, a, a CEO or a board to like sit on, you know, to not be more active. But I, I I've seen acquisitions where you know companies have been under pressure, do an acquisition, they do a big acquisition, and it blows up in their face. It can ruin an entire company. Yeah, you have to be incredibly disciplined. It's very mm -hmm. tough when you have stakeholders, analysts, all these telling you to buy, buy, buy with that cash, and you don't see value. Uh, that is one of the hardest things to do. And we saw that in 2006, 2007 valuations for Eng House in its target market got incredibly high and they, they held to their guns, built up cash and uh, deployed it following the economic, uh, the 2008, 2009 financial crisis. And, you know, for a f about an eight to 10 year period, tremendous growth, one of the fourth best performing stock over that decade on the Toronto stock exchange. Now they've, kept some powder dry right now. The cash is built up. Um, you know, like I said, valuations aren't, you know, you're not a kid in a candy store walking around. Oh, I'm going to buy everything, but they're certainly far better than they were, you know, a year ago, two years ago. And, uh, the company is finding some value. So we expect them to try to deploy that. We'll see how their work, um, now converting their customers to a SaaS based model, uh, progresses over the long term because th we think that is, where they need to go over the long term, but they want to still offer on-premise solutions for certain customers too, as well. And they're able to do that where some of their clients aren't able to do that. So they have an advantage there, but it also is a challenge as they're selling against some customers who have, you know, experienced significant losses. They're cutting prices right now. So, you know, the environment is fluid, but they have been disciplined capital to, uh, deployers over the long term, and we would expect that going forward. I think there's no rush right now. I think we watch it and see if they can continue to buy and integrate these companies, you know, at one time sales and then integrate them and bring their EBITDA margins up to 20, 30 percent. I mean, that would be the model going forward. If we can see that and start deploying that once again, it would be a company to certainly be more aggressive buying. But right now we're just at hold. So that will take Enchouse. Brennan, I believe you have our next Your Stock, Our Take on Mama Mancini's, right? That's Mama uh, Mancini's. your favorite meatball in a cup company. Uh, we've interviewed this management team uh, a number of times. The original uh, founder, I believe, Carl Wolf, yep. uh, met him in person and uh, talked to him on the phone. Had a uh, good quarter, the last quarter, after several years um, or several quarters where they had some negative results in the share price. You can see there popped up and uh, Brent is going to let us know why. You bet. Uh, so Mama Mancini's holding, Holdings Inc. MMMB on the NASDAQ. Currently trading at a price of about $1.90 and has about a $69 million market cap. So Mama Mancini's is a manufacturer and distributor of all natural food products that contain no artificial ingredients, including beef meatballs with sauce, turkey meatballs with sauce, beef meatloaf, uh, chicken parmesan, and other similar meats and sauces. And in addition, the company continues to diversify its product line by introducing new products such as ready-to-serve dinners, single-size pasta bowls, uh, bulk deli, packaged refrigerated and frozen products, including meatballs in a cup, of course. Uh, so uh, looking at the operational updates on the company here. So 
in June of 2022, the current or the CEO, Carl Wolf, stepped down as the CEO and was replaced by Adam Michaels, uh, who previously worked for Mondelez International, which is a multinational food and beverage company, which uh, with operations in over 150 company or countries. Now, In December of 2021, the company acquired two gourmet food manufacturers located in New York for about $14 million. And these companies were T&L Creative Salads, which offers a full line of foods for retail food chains and club stores, delis, bagel stores, uh, caterers and distributors, as well as Olive Branch, which is a premier gourmet food manufacturer, which sells olives, olive mixes and savory products to a limited number of large retail customers, primarily in prepackaged containers. So the new acquisition uh, is expected to generate about $35 million in sales during 2022. And essentially, management did say that these acquisitions do have products that are symbiotic with the existing Mama Mancini's distribution network. So they did say that they they expect some synergies here. Now, the the acquisition has added new national and regional customers and provided an estimated 3,000 new locations and over 10,000 spots on retailer shelves in January. And the price that they paid for the acquisition was about 0.5 times sales. So moving over to the recent financials here. So you can see here Q3 2022 revenue was 25.7 million, an increase of about 137% from 10.9 million. Now, this increase in revenue for the third quarter was driven by organic growth across all divisions, um, you know, where they say primarily through cross-selling but as well as by inorganic growth through the acquisitions of TL, TNL and Olive Branch. Now, profitability did improve here where they posted adjusted EBITDA of 2.1 million compared to just 300,000 last year. And net income for the quarter was 1.1 million or three cents per share uh, compared to essentially nil or uh, just break even last year. And we can see the profitability coming up here essentially because they are seeing some cost inflation start to ease, which I'll kind of get into in a bit here. Now, as the, as at uh, Q3 of 2022, the company held about 3.5 million in cash and had debt and leases of 11.7 million, providing a net debt position of about 8.2 million and a net debt to EBITDA multiple of about 5.3 times, which again is a little elevated because we've seen those margins come down in the business uh, during the last year here. And Looking at the valuation multiples, trailing earnings are negative, so we cannot look at a trailing PE multiple, but on an enterprise value to EBITDA multiple basis, the business trades at 50 times right now. And just for fun, if we anticipate that the company can replicate its Q3 EPS of $0.03 over the next three quarters, the business would be trading at about 16 times forward earnings. So to conclude here, Mama Mancini's is a name that we have monitored for some time as the business has shown a strong track record of revenue growth, although earnings have fluctuated on a quarterly basis, uh, especially as of recent while the company has battled with cost inflation. Now, looking at the company's Q3 2022 results, the business appears to be on the tail end of these cost headwinds, posting strong growth and profitability driven by both organic growth and its acquisitions. Now, as Ryan said, uh, we have both uh, interviewed Carl Wolf, the previous CEO, in early 2022. And at that time, he indicated the business was dealing with elevated costs such as chicken, ground beef, and plastic packaging. However, he noted that the company was implementing their own price increases and saw potential cost saving synergies of over $1 million through its recent acquisitions. And he included recent growth pillars for the business, including its jumbo meatballs, which are being sold through club stores, its frozen meals for one or two, which essentially this is like a 14 ounce high quality frozen dinner, which they, he said they're getting these into a lot of stores. And then of course, my favorite, the meatballs in a cup, uh, which is in the infancy stage, but these are essentially frozen meatballs, which are defrosted at the store and sold as a lunch takeaway and they began to sell these in convenience stores last summer now more recently during the q3 conference call uh, the new ceo adam michaels indicated that commodity costs continued to improve in the quarter and he also said 
while it's still very early, preliminarily, the fourth quarter is shaping up well, and we are on a healthy trajectory moving into calendar year uh, 2023 and beyond. Now, though the trajectory uh, appears promising, we continue to monitor the business at this time as number one, the business does have relatively high net debt and leverage ratios. Number two, the business is trading at relatively pricey multiples, and we don't know if they can replicate that you know, three cents per share earnings over the next few quarters. And number three, for the company to continue to grow through acquisitions, it will likely need to take on more debt or potentially issue some shares. Yeah, I mean, there is a long-term track record of revenue growth. Um, we, we did see the move back. I mean, if like you said, if you could annualize that last quarter, uh, you know, 16 times earnings, if it continues to grow, uh, is not a bad multiple, uh, mm-hmm. particularly if they can bring down their debt levels. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think that they, you know, the last quarter was a significant turnaround, and that's what we would like to see for the business going forward. You bet. And, uh, Keep those. So if I ate a bunch of Mountain food and called it research, does the company pick up the bill or? Of course. <laughs> they might. I'm, they, I'm sure they'd send us some balls in a cup if you really want. That that would be perfect. But I mean, honestly, they, uh, I, I have. Tried it. You, they, they, you know, they're pretty, they're pretty tasty. Like they're that. pretty tasty. Cookie, cookie meals and yeah. what's that? Your, right up your alley. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, sometimes. I, I just say, send me some meatballs. Send me some meatballs. Ma, Ma send me the meatloaf. Hey, Ma, can we get some meatloaf? Yeah. But you can't, can you get the food in Canada? Um, uh, I do not. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I, I know, like, it's all through the U.S. It's all through the U.S. Yes, I, it's yeah, primarily yeah. through the U.S. Like, they, they're in Costco, but again, it's like, you know, they've got, like, basically one branch of Costco. Costco. Sam's, all um, those Yeah, it's like Sam's primarily. Club, um, you know, pr- primarily U.S., yes. Well. Get so on it. Get dinner. some cups of meatballs. Now, we're going to move to our next segment. Segment Brett is answering a viewer question uh, and a client questions too, as well on the new U.S. withholding tax and how it can affect some securities. Primarily, what we'd say partnerships. There's some gray area. Brett's going to get into that right now. Yeah, the, the thrilling world of taxing. You know, it, it just brings in the views. But no, this one's actually quite important. We've received, I think, about a half dozen questions on it from our clients. Because they do, it does um, impact a couple of uh, popular uh, Canadian traded stocks. And it's something which is quite confusing, especially on a service level, if you aren't familiar with uh, taxation, especially. And even then, it's quite a unique uh, situation we're dealing with here. But yeah, we, we can get into it. So many people have received uh, notifications from their brokers. So I know uh, Quest Trade has issued them uh, interactive brokers. I didn't get one from TD myself, but I. I think a couple people have. So quite a few brokers have been issuing these statements saying you're now going to have to pay a 10% withholding tax on uh, these specific U.S. securities or U.S. originated securities, but they actually trade on Canadian exchanges, which is quite confusing. Why would the U.S. be taxing a Canadian exchange? But it actually can happen and they're free to do it. And I'll, I'll go into why. So what is this withholding tax? First of all, I'm really what are we what, what companies are going to impact? The relevant tax code is Partnership Clothing Tax, or IRC Section 1446F. Quite a mouthful to say the least, but it's U.S. tax code, so what do you expect? The withholding tax only applies to non-U.S. investors, so for any U.S. listeners, you're safe. You don't really have to worry about this. Assuming you're a U.S. taxpayer, if you're paying your tax in the U.S., and thus your country of origin as far as tax purposes goes, there you go. You don't have to worry about it. But this withholding tax is 10% of total proceeds, not the profit, not the gains, 10% of total proceeds, which is quite harsh to say the least. So an example of this, let's say you sell 100 shares of a security, doesn't matter what in this case, for $10 each, you receive $1,000 normally. But of that $1,000, if this withholding tax does apply, the IRS would take 10%, leaving you with $900. And like I said, this isn't applying to gains like other taxes, which we see. It applies to the total receipt. So even if you lost money, if you initially bought it at $20, and it fell to that $10, you'd still owe the 10%. You'd still be paying that $100 in tax. So you'd be, initially, you would have had the $2,000. It went down to 1000 You owe another 10% on that. So you're only getting $900 back. You lost $1,100. Yeah. 
So that tax is quite penalizing. And it obviously goes in reverse. So if it went up to like $10,000, you'd be owing $1,000. That is harsh compared to every other tax which you normally encounter. So moving to the securities, it really impacts. As the name implies, it affects partnerships, which is a type of business structure. A partnership is simply a relationship in two or more parties that trade or do business with each party receiving a share or profits and losses. This is commonly seen in like law firms, in um, accounting firms, stuff like that. But in this case, it's specifically publicly traded partnerships, which you don't see yourself normally as a partner, but you're buying effectively stock in this partnership. I'm not going to go too far into the structure, but that's really all you need to know in for this. And unfortunately, like as the corporate structure always is, it's not exactly clear. Some real estate investment trusts, for example, which or REITs is commonly called, and in the name implies it's a trust, not a partnership, which is a different corporate structure, but it even in fact affects these REITs. So due to the complexity of overall corporate structures, some REITs have subsidiaries that are partnerships, and that's why they're impacted. So you might be buying a stock or a unit in the parent company, but if the subsidiary, which is located in the U.S., is a partnership, and you indirectly hold a holding in this, even though you might not be purchasing that holding, you could be impacted. So a common security we've been asked about is Brookfield Infrastructure LP, and LP is a limited partnership. There's your partnership. So if you see that symbol and it has operations in the U.S., you might want to check it out. But that's not absolute. As I was saying above, it depends on the exact corporate structure. So symbol BIPU, BIP.UN on the TSX is Brookfield Infrastructure. As the name suggests, it's a partnership. And it has exposure to the U.S., meeting the criteria for potentially needing the withholding. But as the next complexity arises, as taxes always love to be extremely simple and understandable like this case, it is not, it is exempt. So why is it exempt? It's exempt, has no direct operations, the parent company in the US, but a subsidiary does. So all of Brookfield's holdings, which it, you'll be purchasing the parent holding co- parent company, which is BIP, it has its subsidiary Brookfield US holdings, and that's a corporation. So since it's a corporation, it doesn't actually apply to it. And since technically, this is where the legal standing of it being its own separate entity, technically, BIP isn't doesn't have operations with the U.S. or in the U.S., so it can be exempt. But as a cautionary statement, I will say the BIP um, accounting, I would assume, they need to continuously apply for the exemption. So if for some reason, a significant oversight to say the least, they didn't apply for this, they could actually still get the 10% withholding in tax applied to them. That's very unlikely, but it would be a massive oversight and it is potential. And I'm waiting for the case five or six years down the line where some accounting person gets fired and no one applies for it. I'm waiting for that day. Just don't hope you're holding that sock if it does occur. So without doing really any in-depth analysis into corporate structure, the easiest way to really find out is by checking a list from a broker. I'll include one from um, Interactive Brokers in the description. I think CIBC has issued some. But the issue with these is they're not up to date. Sometimes I've found some mistakes in the IPKR one. It's really just, it could, it's good for a potential issue. So then what you want to do after that is Google or go to the company website. So if you're Googling, search the company's name, then 1446 tax withholding alongside with it. And likely if it applies to it, it will come up on the company website or on Google results. It'll be quite quick. But obviously if you're really concerned, if you're a client of ours, you can contact us. Or if uh, you're not, then uh, become a client, first of all. But if not, uh, you'll have to acquire with some other third-party firm. I hope this information really helps those who are concerned with their holdings or potential holdings. We've had a few people say, should I buy this stock? It, it's coming up as a, this withholding tax can apply to it. And in many of those cases, they've been exempt or it doesn't apply at all. But yeah, I don't know if you guys have any comments on that. No, it's 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 a good breakdown, and Brett is our resident expert. Uh, well, I, I use the term expert lightly. No offense to Brett, but um, he's, he's the one who, who is his, the most knowledgeable on this taxation in in the company. So, if you're a client and you email us about a particular stock, you'll probably be hearing from Brett. Um, but you know, one one thing that I want to you know make clear is that we do get questions about taxation from time to time, and we are not tax experts. So when I said that, you know, Brett is not an expert. I, I mean that in a literal sense. An expert is a tax attorney or a tax accountant. 
And uh, we can only give just general um, information based on what we know. But, you know, the, the caveat there is that we are not experts in any way in taxation. It's a very complicated field. It changes all the time. There's a lot of gray zone. It's not necessarily black and white. So we do our best to try and provide some information on how things work, but do not rely on our taxation advice. Thank you. One thing we can give you expert advice on, or at least expert information right now, is uh, how a company's balance sheet affects risk and your investment decision. And Aaron's going to look at that now. I would love and to if be you, back. Do you have back. slides? Do you have slides? Or? He is a risk expert. Slides. Nice. Well, you're looking up slides, Brennan. I'll, I'll let you know that Mama Mancini's, I couldn't find them on Costco in Canada. Like we they're not thought. Costco they're Canada. just available. Well, we're going to have to make yeah, a trip yeah. down to the States to do some research then. Or just phone up Carl and say, ship me a meatball. Yep. Yep. He or still is on the board of direct directors. So, yep. Carl. All right. Carl. Okay. Let's, let's get to it here. Uh, the topic of this segment is going to be understanding the balance sheet and just performing a quick analysis on a company's financial risk. Now, this is a question that we get fairly frequently, um, particularly in the current environment, because we've seen interest rates increase. We're facing the prospects of a global economic recession, potentially. And one of the big concerns is which companies are best positioned to deal with this? Well, part of that comes down to the balance sheet. This is just going to be a really quick overview on how to analyze a company's financial risk. Uh, but we're going to, you know, it'll give people an idea of essentially some of the first steps. So first of all, what is the balance sheet anyways? We're going to talk about balance sheets. We've We've talked about them in the past. Well, the balance sheet is one of the financial statements, and it's where the company records its, its assets, liabilities, and shareholders' equity, right? So assets meaning the property, plant, and equipment, cash, inventories, um, also some intangibles, liabilities, generally referring to debt or accounts payable, and the shareholders' equity is just the difference between the two. How much of the assets do the shareholders actually own? Uh, and the balance sheet is often used to show a company's financial position at a specific point in time, and then also to measure that company's financial risk. Which brings us to the question, what is financial risk? Well, financial risk is the risk that a company is not able to meet its financial obligations, meaning its interest payments and also its debt principal repayments. So companies have to manage their financial risks in order to protect their solvency and also their profitability. And analyzing financial risk is a very important part of the, of the investment equation. You, investing in a company with high levels of financial risk um, often leads to very poor returns over time. So why is measuring financial risk important? Well, having excessive debt increases the risk that a company will be insolvent or bankrupt. So obviously as a common share investor, if this happens, you're going to take a major hit. So you, you generally want to know what the level of financial risk is in a company. Um, you could have two businesses that have equal earnings, equal earnings growth, equal revenue growth in the same industry, but they have vastly different levels of debt leverage and financial risk. And that is going to be an, an extremely important factor to consider when investing. Um, high levels of debt can also really impact profitability, right? So when, um, when you know, the economy is strong when everything's going good. A lot of companies will load up on their debt um, because they know their revenues are strong. Their revenues are growing. They're stable. They can make their interest payments. But if we enter a period of contraction, wh which potentially we're in right now, potentially we're going to continue to go into and those revenues decline. Well, the revenues are variable in terms of just how much product or service you could sell. But the interest rate is generally not. I mean, unless it's on a variable rate. Um, but you, you have to make those interest payments. So you're, you're still going to have to make those interest payments on the debt, those, those scheduled principal repayments, and lower revenue for a high debt company can very quickly transition a company from being highly profitable to losing a lot of money. Now, Warren Buffett has a really good quote on this. He says, only when the tide goes out do you discover who's been swimming naked. Now, he's kind of applied this to a lot of different scenarios, but we're going to apply it here to a company that has excessive debt or excessive levels of financial risk. Um, and what he means is that, you know, when the tide is in, um, 
you know, all boats, all, all boats float, right? So when the tide is in, meaning the economy is strong, um, consumers are spending a lot of money, you know, there's just, there's a lot of money to go around. That's when companies often load up on debt. It's perfectly fine because they're at the peak of their business demand. They're able to service that debt. But when the tide goes out, meaning the economy contracts, um, spending declines, revenues for most companies are, are going to decline as well. Then all of a sudden you're going to see which are the companies that are sitting there over leveraged that are now having difficulties servicing their debt, making their interest payments, um, making their scheduled principal repayments, and then also refinancing debt potentially at much higher rates because now the risk is seen as being higher. Um, it can really be disastrous for companies and most importantly for the employees and the investors. Now, the balance sheet is one of the key uh, resources that we use to measure a company's financial risk, but it's also important to understand some of the limitations of the balance sheet. And the main limitation is that asset values on the balance sheet, they're not reported at what you would consider to be the market value of that asset. That's, that's a misunderstanding that a lot of investors have. If you see, you say, property plant and equipment reported at a certain amount on a company's balance sheet, you think, well, that's what those assets are worth. It's actually not necessarily the case. Um, assets on the balance sheet, these are accounting terms, and they're generally reported at what is called either lower of cost or market, less any depreciation, again, which is an estimate. But it really comes down to estimates. Um, you know, companies are supposed to, if there's a if there's a meaningful difference between the market value, if the market value is meaningfully lower than what they than what those assets are recorded at on the balance sheet, they are supposed to um, take a loss on those and re-record those at the lower rate, lower of cost or market. Um, but that's not necessarily, that's not an exact science. It relies on a lot of estimates. Um, so, you know, these values, these are accounting terms. They're not necessarily economic terms. And then certain assets like intangible goodwill, um, they may have no value in the market. Um, goodwill particularly is not something that, you know, th these are purely estimates, right? So the, the, the thing to understand here is that using assets um, and then also equity, shareholders' equity as well, to evaluate financial risk, this can be problematic in some cases. It can be very unreliable. I'd say in the best of circumstances, um, you really need to use caution using them. But in some cases, these values reported on the balance sheet can be completely misleading and you, you, you can't rely on them at all. So an ideal balance sheet is what we would call a cash-rich balance sheet. So this is this is a company that has a large surplus of cash on the balance sheet. So lots of cash. This cash, we want to see it coming from uh, operations. So not that they've raised a bunch of money um, by selling shares, but rather that they're from internally generated cash flow. They've amassed a huge cash balance. They have minimal to no debt. So the cash balance substantially exceeds the debt level. So this is a net cash business or what we would call a cash-rich business. And this is an area of the market that we look at a lot, like just a couple of examples of companies that we currently have under coverage, one being Dynacor. Um, this is in our, our in our Canadian small cap research. They they have a market cap of what, 114 million, um, almost 33 million in cash, almost no debt. So about 83 cents per share in net cash, right? Compared to a, a share price of $3 right now. So this is a very cash-rich business. Um, another company in our, uh, our Keystone's um, U.S. growth research is Fortinet, which trains on the NASDAQ. It's a cybersecurity company. They have a market cap of $47 billion, about $2.2 billion in cash, $1 billion in debt. So they have more debt, but much more cash, more than double. The, the cash level is more than double the debt. So net cash of $1.2 billion or $1.53 per share, right? Um, not necessarily a substantial percentage of the current share price, but still you're sitting there. This is a company that has a surplus of cash. And what can these companies do with this cash? Well, one, you have to worry less about um, rising interest rates, particularly from a debt service perspective um, or from a repayment of debt perspective. Um, but these companies also have excess cash, which they can then do to do things like buy back shares or invest in growth. And that's what we want to see. But most companies do not have a cash-rich balance sheet. Um, this is a very rare attribute. It's something that does exist. And as I said, Keystone puts out entire special reports 
on just finding companies that have cash-rich balance sheets and are profitable. But most companies at least have some debt. And that's okay. In a lot of industries, it's absolutely necessary. And a reasonable amount of debt is okay. But what is a reasonable amount of debt and how do you evaluate that? So one way to analyze the financial risk is to do financial ratio analysis. And there's three ratios that are particularly popular when it comes to analyzing financial risk. So one, which we use quite frequently, is the net debt to EBITDA ratio. EBITDA being earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. It's a form of operating income. Um, so this is the ratio of the net debt to the EBITDA, um, or, or essentially measuring the debt relative to the operating performance or operating earnings of the company. Uh, sometimes because you know EBITDA can be a problematic figure itself, sometimes cash flow is subs substituted and it'll be a net debt to cash flow. But you're essentially figuring out you know how many times, how, how, how much more, uh, how many multiples to the cash flow or EBITDA is the net debt, right? And that gives you an assessment of you know relative to the company's operating earnings or cash flow, how indebted are they? Um, the other is the debt to equity. So this is a ratio of debt to shareholders equity. How much of the total capital of the business is financed with debt relative to equity is essentially what this is telling you. And this is a very popular metric. But as I said before, now you're using shareholders equity. Um, so you're relying on a lot of accounting terms. The debt is going to be a market term. You can, you can trust the debt more. The shareholders equity, you, you need to be a little bit cautious. So while we do use the debt to equity ratio, you know, we, we don't rely on it too much. Um, and another is the interest coverage. This is the ratio of earnings before interest and taxes to the total interest expense. And what is this telling you? Well, one way of looking at this is like, what is the margin of safety between it, the interest payments and the earnings that the company generates, right? How much can the interest payment increase before it essentially takes up all of the earnings and you have an unprofitable company, right? So all of these and many other uh, ratios are used to analyze a company's balance sheet. Um, these are really just a few. Each of them have their own strengths and their own weaknesses, and they all tell a little bit of a different story about the company's financial risk. Just focusing on the net debt to EBITDA ratio, because I think this is definitely one of the most common ratios that's used. And a question that we, we will get is, well, what is a good and what is a bad net debt to EBITDA ratio? If I'm getting a ratio of you know, one times, three times, 10 times, how do I know what that means, right? Well, the answer is that this really depends. It depends on the industry, it depends on the company fundamentals. Um, and really what it depends on is how stable is the company's underlying cash flow, right? So if you have a company that has a, you know, reasonably low net debt to EBITDA ratio, but their cash flow fluctuates from positive to negative every year, and you really don't know where they're gonna be a year from now, um, that might be a company that you, you don't you want to see a very low net debt to EBITDA ratio or just a company that doesn't have any debt because they don't know if they're going to have cash flow next year to pay their to pay their interest payments. Um, whereas if you have a company that has very stable, very visible cash flow, um, maybe based on long term contracts or just very strong markets, um, then that that's the type of company that is able to have more debt on its balance sheet because they have more certainty that they're gonna be able to um, service that debt next year, the year after that for many years in the future. So I just, I, I provided a couple of guidelines here dividing stocks into three categories, highly cyclical, semi-cyclical and defensive. These are really just guidelines. These are not hard and fast rules. Within these categories, you're gonna have widely different types of companies, different risk, risk levels. Um, it's very debatable. There's no black and white in terms of what is a good ratio or bad ratio even when you divide companies in categories. But just as a general guideline, for highly cyclical industries, we want that ratio to be low, ideally zero. If it's a very cyclical industry, we don't really wanna see a lot of debt because we don't know that there's gonna be any cash flow next year to service it. Um, and if those, if they have a lot of debt in a good year and then their cash flow drops off next year and they have to refinance that debt, you can be sure if, if, the, if the operating risk of the company and the profitability is lower that the interest rate relative to market rates is going to be higher as well. Um, so what industries would this be? Well, like oil and gas producers, oil and gas service companies, mining, other commodity sensitive businesses, right? So in the middle here, semi-cyclical companies. Um, so this is a wide range of different types of industries, maybe industrials, technology, consumer companies. Um, generally, we're going to say 
less than three times. Now, for some of these companies, three times is going to be too much, right? You, you might want to really say more in like the one to three times range. But again, I, ideally at zero. Um, you know, ideally when you're investing in a company, you want you want the leverage ratio to be as low as possible. Now, that's not realistic in all cases. And as I said, reasonable leverage is okay. Um, but, you know, once you start getting beyond the three times net debt to EBITDA in a semi-cyclical business, you're starting to look at what we would consider to be higher leverage. You know, maybe if it's 3.5 for some businesses for depending on the company, um, but the higher the ratio, you're starting to get into higher levels of financial risk. And then you have defensive industries. So these are generally industries where you're producing earnings and cash flow based off maybe a regulated rate of return based on long-term contracts that where there's a high confidence that you're going to get paid. Um, so you know what your cash flow is going to be next year, the year after that. Um, these are often, you know, you, industries like utilities, REITs. These are capital intensive industries. They have a lot of assets um, and that requires debt. I mean, if you're in a capital intensive industry, you have financed a significant portion of your assets with debt in almost all cases. So we would expect the leverage ratios to be higher in these industries. And that's okay, given that, you know, generally speaking, you're going to have higher, higher um, certainty of cash flow in the future. Um, I, you know, generally less than five times net debt to EBITDA. There are some cases when it should be well less than five times. In some cases, it could be a little higher. But again, it's uh, these are just really general guidelines. And there's more to just ratio analysis when it comes to analyzing a, a, a company's financial risk. You want to know a little bit more about the debt. Some really important questions nowadays, particularly in the current environment with rising interest rates, is how much of the debt is fixed relative to variable, right? So if you have a company with a lot of variable debt, interest rates go up, that's going to be a major increase in expenses. Um, when are the large scheduled debt repayments due? I mean, you may have a company that financed a ton of fixed debt um, at you know 2% interest rates, and the current market rate is 5%. And that looks great when you're looking at their historical financials but maybe all of that is due in the next year. And you, you, you'll you know that the company has to refinance that debt at much higher rates. That's going to be higher interest expense. Everything else equal, lower profitability. Um, knowing what the interest rate is on the debt, the level of the interest rate, and also just whether or not the company uses derivatives like interest rate swaps um, to fix their rates. And if so, what are the specific terms? And when do these, when do they expire? Because again, you may have a company that has fixed its rates through the initial increase in, in interest rates. Um, but if those swaps are ready to expire, then they're going to be exposed to the market rates. And that's going to have a major impact on the company's financial performance. So where do you get this information? Well, typically you will get this type of information in the, in the footnotes of the company's financial statements. And every company is going to disclose information in the footnotes a little bit differently. Um, some disclose a lot, some disclose a little. This is just an example of um, from one company. This is a real life example um, where the the company discloses um, the amount of debt, the average rate, and then when debt is coming due. So in this case, the company has about three point two billion in total debt outstanding, an average interest rate on that debt of two point six three percent. And in the table below, we can actually see. Um, how much debt is going to have to be refinanced in each year. So in 2023, this year, the company's going to need to refinance about $590 million in debt. Um, now, if that debt, if the current market rates are significantly higher than the rates on that debt, then you're going to expect interest rates to increase. So footnotes is one, one resource. Um, another resource is also just talking to management. That's what we would do. We would call it management, we would, you know, clarify some of the information we find in the footnotes. Um, anything that's missing, we would ask, you know, what, you know, we, we would have questions essentially to fill in the gap. So it's, uh, it's, it's, this is really just a quick analysis of how you would, you would look at financial risk of a company. And this is also tied in again, to what the other fundamentals in the company looks like, but this will give people an idea of, um, and a couple of tools of that, that can be used. Good. Gentlemen. Yeah, that was a good summary. Thanks for that. That certainly would answer anybody's questions on balance sheet and uh, the risk and how it affects the investment uh, decision. Um, 
Yeah, and and you, you we we just published a report on uh, cash rich companies, mm-hmm. right? And you highlighted Dynacor there, and e- their cash balance is actually even better because it's uh, the thirty one million they hold is in U.S. dollars, and you know that that makes it like forty two right. million. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. But I mean, we but those are those are companies that I mean, like you said, they're they're not. Uh, you don't find them often that have a cash rich balance sheet and an ability to expand. And, you know, if they have that cash rich balance sheet sitting there, they can do that. Now, a company with debt is not suddenly the worst company in the world because it has debt. Many companies have debt and have been tremendous long term investments because they've allocated the capital properly to, to a great return. But, you know, it's, it is nice to see a company with a good cash balance and then they can execute on a strategy of growing if they want to grow by using the cash on hand. Uh, and not issuing shares. It is a tight rope to walk when you're issuing shares all the time and trying to get a return on capital over the long term that that you know that exceeds the issuance of those shares on a per share basis. And it it it's we've seen many companies, we've seen a select few do it tremendously well and be very successful, and many companies execute it poorly and kill returns over the long term. So you know those are the things you got to watch for. Uh, over leveraged companies are, you know, who cannot, uh, aren't really growing the business or cash flow on a per share basis are not where you want to be in the market over the long term. The flip side of that is where you want to be. Companies that are growing on a per share basis over the long term drive the share price higher. Yeah. And like so cash, I, yeah. if I could just add a little bit more, you know, just, yeah, I'm not sure at this point. Cash rich no, businesses are so important for, you know, companies with commodity specific risk. Like even like look at Vermilion Energy, for example, mm-hmm. where we saw the company end up, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, they were highly levered. They ended up reducing their dividend and then they came back, like, or they cut it in half and then they came back and absolutely removed the dividend off the stock. And, you know, having commodity risk, you know, who know or who knew where oil was going? You know, that's the thing where, you know, having that cash rich balance sheet is is a great margin of safety for these companies that have, you know, that commodity specific risk. And I think that if you are going to invest in, you know, a business with commodity exposure, I think that, you know, trying to find one with that margin of safety with a cash rich balance sheet is the best way to go. Anyways. Yeah. I mean, and that's why it's a, it's certainly a higher risk area. And like, that's why, you know, if you want to have, you know, gold exposure, Dynacor, you know, is a way of doing that. There's Geodrill, which was a driller. There's a ton of drillers out there with a ton of debt and, uh, you know, they don't have that debt. So that's why we, you know, it's all, it's great to have growth in the good times, but there are bad times coming in a cyclical industry at any point and you need to be able to survive and then thrive coming out and you want that good balance sheet. And that's what we're, looking for when we make put any dollars into that segment so it's a good point by brennan and i'm glad you added that thanks that's about as good as it's going to get from us here for all right thank you very much i think we're going to close out the episode i haven't missed brett because he went third this time right so thank god for that um keep your questions coming in for our your stock our take segments uh smash the subscribe button if you're viewing this on youtube And if you're watching or sorry, listening to this on iTunes, subscribe, rate and review us on there. We'd love to hear what you have to say. And as always, I wish you profitable investing. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.